John chapter 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 845. I'm going to be reading John chapter 12, verse 9 through 19. It'll be on the screen, and you can follow along there or with the Bible you're holding. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I echo my brother's sentiments. What a joy and privilege it is to be able to be here this morning. Certainly have had a long-standing relationship with Benjamin, knew Jason before Benjamin, I think, is how I got connected with Benjamin. Um, Certainly know a lot of folks here from softball, from CCA, and just wonderful to see this expression of the larger body of Christ as I get to worship with you this morning. What a privilege. What a privilege. Uh, as Jason, I'm sorry, as Benjamin, I have Jason on the mind now. As, as Benjamin said, um, yeah, I've been at Grace for 13 years in varying roles, uh, pastor of outreach and discipleship ministries, most recently children, youth, and families. Uh, But as Benjamin had mentioned, now the church plant pastor for Grace BFC, and we're trying to figure out where we're going. We're hoping to do that this month, but uh, excited about this new adventure and God kind of pushing us out the door to see the gospel ministry expand in the greater Harrisburg area. Uh, We're reminded as we go of the wonderful fellowship we have with the churches here in this area and the support we have with like-minded brothers and sisters, and we covet your prayers as we go about doing that. As Benjamin read, we are in uh, John chapter 12 this morning, uh, continuing your series in the Gospel of John. And, And we have a wonderful passage before us this morning. Now, it's not a passage that we usually take up at this time of the year, not typically the passage you have leading up to Christmas, But thankfully for us, that no matter what we open to in the Word of God, it speaks to God's people in that moment. The Word of God is living and is active and useful for training, for rebuke, for reproach, for building up and equipping. And so we come this morning to this well-known passage of Scripture and expect to hear from the living God. 
Now, I'm not going to give much of an introduction. We're going to dive in because there is an awful lot going on here. Um, it is an overwhelming passage, just 10 or so short verses, but a lot going on here. Let me start us with prayer. I'm going to need the Holy Spirit's help as we come to it, and then uh, we'll get rolling. Father God, I do thank you for this privilege of being here with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you, Father, for this gospel of John and the revelation therein of Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, the glories of our Lord and Savior. And Father, as I open up this passage today, I just pray that you would speak to us all, that you would show us his glory. That perhaps in a way that we've never beheld it before, Lord, as we come to this familiar passage, cause our eyes to see, our hearts to receive. Give us understanding by your spirit. Oh, and Lord, strengthen me. Strengthen me, the communicator. And may I proclaim this passage boldly and clearly as I should. And Lord, work towards the building up of your church here at Community through the hearing of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, two simple things that we want to see here in this passage. Two simple things. And it ties right back to John's theme. What is John's theme? We find it at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have everlasting life in his name. That, that's what John is trying to do. So, so the two things that, that we have in this passage, what is he doing? He's again giving clear testimony that Jesus is Messiah, giving a, a clear presentation that this one, Jesus of Galilee, that he is the Christ. And the second thing he wants is he wants us to see the responses to him. Again, over and over in John's gospel, we have this recurring series of events. Jesus presents himself. People respond. Now, just to set the stage, John 12 really is the turning point in John's gospel. All of John's gospel has been building up to this point. The first 11 chapter of, chapters of John's gospel covers three years. Three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. What we get from chapters 12 through the end, a little over a week. A little over a week. Now, as we come to chapter 12, John has been making this case very clearly that Jesus, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And the climax of John's revelation, of Jesus's revelation of himself so far, has been the raising from death to life of the man Lazarus. Now, as you've seen throughout, the Jewish religious leaders, they're getting increasingly more uncomfortable with Jesus, more nervous. They know what Jesus has been claiming about himself. They know what people are saying about him. In fact, they are sick of hearing about it. What have they said? They said, if anybody declares that Jesus is the Christ, they're going to be put out of the synagogue. No more. We don't want to hear any more about this Jesus. For one, a Jew, to all of a sudden take up to follow Christ, what were they risking? Everything. Ostracized from their community, from their families, from their society. 
put out. But now there's this miracle. There's this miracle. This guy, he'd been dead and in a tomb for four days and raised again to life. No one had ever done anything remotely like that. What were the religious leaders to do with this? Their, their fear is ever-increasing. Everybody, all the Jews are going to turn to him. This Jesus, he is whipping the people into a messianic frenzy. Long had they awaited the son of David. Long had they awaited one to take Israel's throne again and deliver them from their enemies, to establish the kingdom of Israel again in true righteousness and glory, this Jesus, he was building a following. And the Romans, the Romans, they're not going to stand for it. They're not going to take a rival king and a rival kingdom. So the religious leaders, they have a choice to make. And they just can't stand by idly. Too much, too much is at stake. Everything will be lost. The Romans would bring harsh retribution. And to quote those words from the high priest Caiaphas, their conclusion, oh, it is far better that one man should die for his people rather than the whole nation perish. Astonishingly prophetic words. So they plot to kill him. And Jesus, of course, comes to know about this. You covered this at the end of chapter 11. He, at that point, makes himself scarce and goes off to the town of Ephraim on the edge of the wilderness. Well, we need to be clear. Jesus, he has no fear whatsoever of dying. That's why he came. He was the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep. But the hour, the hour had not yet come. Oh, it was drawing near, but it had not yet come. Now we get hints throughout John's gospel that there is this divine clock, <laughs> this divine programs. All things are happening according to schedule, according to God's sovereign plan. Now, the clearest example of this, if we went back a few pages, went back to chapter 7, we have a, this picture of the Jews already pressing in upon Jesus. They already want to put him to death. So Jesus makes a decision. He's not going to go up to the Feast of Booths, not going to go to Jerusalem with his brothers. And he says directly why, because his time had not yet come. Well, as things work out, he decides to go anyways, but privately. But soon he's found out. And when people recognize him, the authorities want to arrest him. But they can't. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Now we need to have all this in mind, this divine schedule, this divine program, as we come to chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 12. As chapter 12 opens, it's six days before the Passover. And it's at this time that Jesus comes out of hiding. 
and he comes into Bethany, a place that would have known him well, for that's where he raised Lazarus. And there's this big dinner in his honor, and all of a sudden he's on display for anybody who would be looking for him. And they were. At the end of chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given order that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, Jesus knows all of this. He knows all about it. But he boldly makes his presence known in Bethany. And then, and then what does he do? He leaves Bethany and he comes riding into Jerusalem with great fanfare, with great spectacle. I'm an engineer. I always have to ask why. Why? Well, because his hour had come. You'll pick up that verse next week in 1223. His hour had come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, now this is what we have at this turning point in John's gospel. The hour had come. The hour had come for the humiliation, the suffering, the agony of Messiah that would lead to his glory, to his glory. Now, as I say this, it's in this light that we have to take in this triumphal entry and what is happening here. Now, I want us to see, you know, I guess I read too many Puritans. I gave you one point to start with, but I'm going to give you three sub points. I, I want you to see three things here that this entry into Jerusalem, it's a voluntary act of Jesus according to the sovereign will of God in fulfillment of the scriptures. That's what John wants us to see. This is a voluntary act of Jesus according to the sovereign will of God in fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, first of all, as Jesus very publicly rides into Jerusalem, he goes willingly, he goes voluntarily because... He knows where this ride will end. And he embraces what is before him. What we have in this triumphal entry is more than the presentation of a messianic king. It's also the presentation of Israel's Passover lamb. Now, according to Jewish tradition, it was four days before the Passover feast that the lamb would be set apart, would be selected for the sacrifice. This is what Jesus is doing as he's riding in to Jerusalem. Indeed, he's Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And as such, he orchestrates this entry into Jerusalem. He is declaring that he is Israel's king. But as Messiah... He is also the suffering servant of Isaiah. He would be pierced for his people's transgressions. He would be wounded for their iniquities. The chastisement that would fall upon him would bring peace to his people. Now, with this very visible and celebratory entry into Jerusalem, Jesus, in effect, is inviting the religious leaders to do that which their evil hearts intended. 
he must die. And he's willingly going to lay down his life for the salvation of his people. In John 10, 11, we read that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in verse 18, he says, no one takes it from him, but he lays it down of his accord. Early in John's gospel, we read these words of Jesus. God sent his son into the world that the world might be saved through him. And the son willingly subordinated himself to the will of the father. He voluntarily took up to accomplish the redemption of mankind. He clothed himself in our flesh. And he lived the life that we were appointed to live in complete obedience to the Father, fulfilling all righteousness. And having completed that course, he then willingly offered up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So first of all, we need to see this triumphal entry as Jesus presenting himself as the Passover lamb, voluntarily offering himself up. A little later on, you'll get there shortly in John 15, verse 13, we read, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Again, as John is writing these things, what is he doing? He's stirring in our hearts and minds a fascination, a wonder for this Jesus, for this Jesus who willingly goes to die a certain death. And for us, what matchless grace, what amazing love, we need to behold this and see that this is what brings Jesus ultimately into Jerusalem. Well, what do we owe to such a king? Well, back in Jesus' words in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Our Savior has set an example for us of humble submission. In Philippians chapter 2, well-known verses. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Now, as I've alluded, as I've already stated, not only is this seen as a voluntary act of Jesus, a voluntary offering up of himself to the wicked religious leaders, but we have to see this all happening according to God's sovereign plan. There's a wonderful interplay in John's gospel. We have these wicked intentions of the religious leaders to put Jesus to death. But nothing, 
Nothing happens apart from the sovereign plan of God. Many times throughout the ministry of Jesus, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to arrest him. Plans were either thwarted or Jesus escaped. And again, there were times when Jesus, knowing their intentions, just slipped into obscurity to avoid their hand. Again, simply because it wasn't time, because it wasn't the plan. But we come here to chapter 12, and what do we see? We see that God sovereignly has orchestrated things beautifully for his purposes. By the time that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the religious leaders are seething. They're furious. They thought this man had finally gone into hiding, and there he is all of a sudden at Bethany, and people are flocking to him. They want to see him. They want to see that the miracle man that was raised from the dead, Lazarus. They get so angry, they want to kill Lazarus now. Jesus must be gone. In all evidence of his miracles, they must be gone. They're seething. They're seething. They decided that they want to kill him. But they want to kill him off when? After the feast. In private. They don't want to rile up the crowds. We get that in parallel accounts in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. But it doesn't matter what they want because God has a plan. And the plan is that the time has come now. Now was the time for the shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. Now was the time for the revelation of the true Passover lamb, for that Passover lamb to be slain. And it had to be done during the Passover, not after. The time had come for the true blood of atonement for the sins of God's people to be shed. It would happen now. It would happen at this moment in Jerusalem and very publicly. We turn to Proverbs 19.21 in these words of comfort. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The Pharisees, yeah, they have their plan, but God has another. We have to, as we come to this passage, we have to see this sovereign hand of God moving things along according to his timing events working even in the hearts of wicked men to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Peter, as he preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he talks about Jesus as being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Men have their plans, but God's purposes prevail. Daniel 4, 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Oh, Christian, what comfort, what comfort is this to you? That God is sovereign in all his creation, in his plan of redemption. His will shall be done. His plan cannot be thwarted. And that includes his plan for you, for the redemption of your soul. 
those God foreknew, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justifies, he glorifies. God is sovereign in his plan of salvation. Now, the last thing that we want to pick up here in this revealing of Messiah uh, is that in this triumphal entry, John's making it very clear, as do all the gospel writers, that Jesus comes in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, this is connected to our previous point about the sovereignty of God and his plan. But Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he comes. Most notably, he is filling, uh, fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9, uh, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. John makes reference to that passage in his gospel paraphrasing and I'm not sure his reason in paraphrasing, but his audience would have known exactly where that came from. And we could go beyond Zechariah 9. We could go to Isaiah 53. We could go to Daniel 9 in the weeks of Daniel that foretold the timing of the coming and the cutting off of Messiah. We could go to the Messianic Psalms. Jesus is fulfilling all scripture that pointed to him. I, I think of after his resurrection, as he's walking on the road to, to Emmaus, he comes across a couple of disciples who are just confused. How could all this have happened? And what does he do as he's walking on the road? He goes through all of the scriptures and points to all the things that foretold the things that he would say, that he would do, and how he would accomplish the redemption of his people. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter that, why do the gospel writers care about showing us that Jesus is fulfilling scripture? Again, what is John's purpose? He wants to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. So he goes back and shows how he fulfills all things concerning this Messiah. But brothers and sisters, there's further encouragement here in seeing in the pages of Scripture prophecy fulfilled. There are for the Christian promises of God yet to be realized, prophecy yet to be fulfilled, most notably the coming of the kingdom in glory, the consummation of the messianic age. Here is our hope. I love the way that Joshua ends. Not one of God's good promises failed to that generation, and not one of God's good promises will fail to us. In Numbers 23, one of my favorite verses, Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Take heart, my brothers and sisters. Now, I know I wanted to get to the responses of the crowd this morning, the presentation 
of Messiah, but certainly in weeks to come, you're going to be able to dissect this crowd as you see things play out with Jesus Christ. But let me just say in short, the responses to this presentation of Messiah, this triumphal entry, well, they're the same responses that we've seen throughout John's gospel. They're the same responses that we see today. People love him. People hate him. People are intrigued by him. People are indifferent to him. Now, in that crowd that day, you certainly had three groups of people. I call them the sincere, the superficial, and the seething. There were sincere people there that day. And we see some sincere responses to the Messiah. That's how I take the response of the disciples in verse 16. His disciples, they don't understand everything going on. There's a lot they didn't understand regularly. (laughs) But what does John say here? When Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things had been written about him and done to him. Again, picture that exchange after Jesus' death and resurrection on the road to Amazus as he expounds the scriptures for them. And think of on that day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is poured out, giving enlightenment to the disciples. Perhaps for the first time, they start putting the pieces together. But, but these, these disciples that are referred to very briefly here, We see them stick with Jesus. Yeah, they'll waver a little bit, but they stick with Jesus. We see them still in the acts of the apostles, clinging to the hope of Messiah. They're clearly Jesus' sheep, and they know their shepherd. Now, of course, we've got another group, and it's the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and as I've mentioned, they're seething. By the end of this triumphal entry, they're frustrated. Jesus is turning their world upside down. He's challenging their authority. He's jeopardizing their position. He's leading their followers away from them. He's confronting them in their sin and transgression, and it ticks them off. Well, it's not too surprising that that's the same things that tick people off about Jesus these days confront them in their waywardness, discredit their authority, saying there's an authority over them, lead people away from their following, and they'll get angry. Well, we see this seething group of religious leaders, their frustrations won't get them anything. As they themselves remark, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And their words, unbeknownst to them, they're prophetic words. In the next verses, we see that Greeks are coming to Jesus and asking questions. Of course, we get to the book of Acts and we see the gospel spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we see that gospel still spreading today. There's no way that they can thwart the plan of God or this Jesus Messiah. Their anger only leads to furthering God's plan. But then there's this crowd, this crowd that is gathered, and we'll call them the superficial. 
There's no doubt in this extravagant display that they're receiving Jesus as King, as Savior, as Messiah. In a frenzy, they are waving palm branches. They make a royal carpet out of their cloaks and the palms. They're shouting, Hosanna, which in Hebrew means, please save or save now. It's taken from Psalm 118. They're also shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, also from Psalm 118. Now, originally, that blessing shout was shouted to pilgrims who would come to Jerusalem, but the psalm came to be seen as messianic. And the one who comes, he who comes, literally, the coming one. He was thought, he was known to be Messiah, the long-expected king, and it's clearly how the crowd sees him because they tack on to that quote, even the king of Israel. So they're celebrating King Jesus come. They're celebrating the coming of Messiah. And it's a wonderful celebration, full of fervor, and it seems convincing. Even the Pharisees are convinced that people are going after him. But this display, this display, it's superficial. There's no real commitment to Christ. Jesus himself is not fooled in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, as the crowds are praising him, what is he doing? He's weeping. He's weeping over Jerusalem because he knows that these who are shouting his name, they're going to ultimately reject him and miss the day of Messiah's visitation. Jesus saw through this celebration of this, this crowd and uh, this despicable crowd is by, by no means anything like the, the, the glorious company which we find in uh, the revelation of John, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. On my last comment, this is where I'm going to end is we need to take a warning from this. What passes for passion for the Messiah? What happens here in, Luke, in, in John's gospel? It quickly fades. And why does it fade? And why does it fade for some of our friends or those that we've known, those who at one time professed Christ and then wandered away? Well, it all depends upon what kind of Messiah you've received. What was it that the crowd was looking for? What was it that they wanted? Well, going back to John 6, Jesus gently rebukes the crowd that is coming to him in John 6 and verse 26. Uh, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you're convinced I'm Messiah, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. This crowd, they're coming again. They, they want to see Lazarus. They want to see more signs. They're looking for Messiah to bring them temporal comforts, to heal their diseases, to feed them, to set them free from Rome. But Jesus has already said, I'm offering you so much more food that endures to eternal life. But they miss this. And when Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he's going to die, when he talks about the cost, when they begin to calculate the cost of picking up and following this Messiah, all that they would have to lose, they wander away. They fade off. And again, I know Benjamin asked this question last week, and it's a question you'll probably get asked over and over and over again. What kind of Messiah do you have? And what are your expectations of him? When Messiah, when, when, when Jesus doesn't provide your every earthly need, when he doesn't heal your loved one who is ill, when aligning with him brings you strife as you face a world that is growing increasingly more arrogant and resentful of Christ and those that follow him. When your world seems to be crashing in because you've come to this Savior, will he still be worth following? Will he be worth the trouble? I think of the parable of the soils Jesus teaches in Matthew 13, and how the seed is scattered, some on rocky ground, some on the path, some on amongst thorns, some on good soil. Some of those seeds sprout, but they're choked out by cares of the world, by persecutions and trials. And you've got to ask yourself, if I face those things, will I stand firm and continue to produce fruit in keeping with everlasting life. You've got to ask yourself, is he a Messiah worth following? Is he worthy of giving my very all? Make no mistakes about it that Jesus clearly presents himself here as the Christ, the Son of God, in this voluntary act according to the sovereign plan of God and fulfillment of the scripture. The Messiah puts himself forward here and most would reject him. John makes it very clear in his gospel very early on as he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that day, he comes humble and lowly on a young donkey. He comes 
offering peace and salvation. But when he returns, when he returns, it'll be a different picture. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, brothers and sisters, make sure you find yourself on the side of the sincere. Behold the glory of this Messiah here presented. Worship him. Adore him. Give him your all, for he is worthy. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we end this morning with this wonderful thought of the glory of our Christ, our Savior, our Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the plan, for, for the plan from eternity past to redeem a people for the glory of your name. Oh, Lord, cause, cause our eyes to see him, uh, cause our eyes to see him more fully. And for the one sitting here today who before hasn't considered, oh, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May they behold the Christ. May they behold their God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.